Welcome to The Conversation, a podcast about educational technology, instructional design, and the learning sciences. This episode, we're going to talk about the brain, specifically about what happens to the brain while it is learning, and also what we now know about the brain from recent studies on neuroscience. But before we get to that, I'd like to introduce my two guests for this episode, Jennifer and Jonathan. Please tell us a bit about yourselves. Uh, so my name is John. Um, I am a second-year teacher in Brooklyn, New York. People always ask me, why did you want to become a teacher? And the answer I give them is, I guess, a little complex. Uh, it's not necessarily that I want to be a teacher. I wanted to help people that were less fortunate than me. Um, I grew up in a very nice family. Uh, both my parents are, you know, I guess semi-wealthy. They have nice jobs. Um, and I started working at a special needs camp, and I really just... To where I saw that there are a lot of people out there less fortunate than me. So uh, I went to this school where uh, all my students, pretty much all my students, are from families that are first-generation immigrants. Um, it's my second year teaching algebra and STEM, and uh, I'm really enjoying myself. Uh, I like to play sports. I like to watch sports uh, when I'm not teaching sports in my life. So that's a little bit about myself. My name is Jennifer, and I live in Florida. Uh, I've been teaching for nine years now. I started in high school teaching intensive reading to 9th, 10th, and 11th graders. And then I moved to the elementary school where I've taught 5th grade, 4th grade, and this year I'm now the media specialist at my school, which I'm real excited about. I've always been passionate about reading, and so I feel like this is a really good fit for me. All right, good, great. Nice to meet you all. So we usually address audience questions at the end, but I'd like to start with Emily's question because she asked it last week. And her question was about how the misconceptions we read about specifically with regards to learning styles go with Gardner's multiple intelligences. She asks, quote, what are your thoughts on how these misconceptions might affect Gardner's research that has been a large part of education, unquote. So I gave you a short article from Edutopia that discusses this a bit, but here's my take on it. Although learning styles and multiple intelligences seem similar, they're not the same. Gardner makes a point of saying that. The learning style hypothesis says that we can only be one kind of learner, usually broken down into visual, auditory, or kinesthetic. So if you think people can be more flexible, then you're not talking about learning styles hypothesis anymore. And so this specific hypothesis has been debunked over and over again in research. That's learning styles, and it's important to be consistent with the way we use that phrase, at least in these conversations that we're having. Multiple intelligence is different. Gardner came up with it in the 80s, and he was rejecting the idea that intelligence is the singular construct, and instead he argued that it's actually made up of multiple systems that include the visual, the auditory, the spatial, as well as the mathematical, interpersonal, interpersonal, and so on. And this was a time when a lot of scholars were beginning to turn ideas that used to be thought of as singular into plural, like literacy. We often talk about literacies now because scholars are getting a more nuanced understanding of language and culture. So the question then is, are these multiple intelligences a way of thinking about the mind, like a metaphor or a model, or does it correspond to actual parts of the brain? And as we'll talk about in a bit, we know that there are parts of the brain that correspond to the visual and linguistic portions of our brain, but what about the other intelligences? And so those who criticize Gardner's theory would say that if it's about thinking and talking about the mind, then it's not really something that can be proven empirically anyway. I know this is a tangent, but this is kind of like when Galileo came up with the model of the heliocentric universe. We're usually taught that the church was outraged by that move, but what you don't hear is that the church actually didn't care that much about what Galileo's theory was. 
And in fact, some people actually encouraged him to talk about it. As long as he was only using it as a way of thinking about the universe, like, you know, to make better calculations and about the planets or eclipses. But when he insisted that the heliocentric universe is not just a model, but actually corresponds to reality, that's when the church went after him. And, you know, that doesn't make it right, but that's still an important difference. So what is Gardner saying then? Brain research in the 80s wasn't as advanced as it is now. But as I was digging through more recent research, I did come across a study that claims that multiple intelligences do correspond to areas of the brain. I haven't had a chance to read that closely yet, but maybe Gardner will be proven right after all. But the other thing is educational research and the learning sciences in the U.S. has kind of moved off from onto different topics like metacognition. So within the research community, multiple intelligences is not just as popular, but it's still quite popular in other parts of the world. If you put multiple intelligences down into a Google Scholar search, you'll find that most of the research comes from outside the U.S. And I think it's because it's accessible, it's intuitive, and um, it's easy to understand. But at least in the U.S., it's not considered that cutting edge. But if you're a teacher, that doesn't really matter. There are a lot of good reasons to consider multiple intelligences just to make sure your students can process information differently. I think it's good to think about the visual and the spatial aspects of learning. I like the point you made at the end where uh, you're kind of showing the students the different kind of approaches that they can learn, their different intellectual abilities. I think it's definitely important to at least uh, get the student's foot in the doors, you know, show them um, maybe like a musical uh, way to teach something or show them all the different intellectual abilities that they might have. Um, For example, when, when I am teaching in math, we're learning Y equals MX plus B which is uh, pretty much like a, a very, very important formula that, that they're going to need pretty much for the rest of their lives in math. Um, and I, I pulled up a YouTube video where it is a teacher and his students kind of rapping over a Macklemore song. And uh, not just rapping over the Macklemore song, but giving the math, mathematical information in the song. And I think it is important to get the students' foot in the door and show them the different ways that they can learn. Um, but... The point where I would draw the line is kind of labeling these students. And I think that's where learning, I think that's where learning styles and multiple intelligences are, are meshed together is we label, the, label a student as a kinesthetic learner or we label a student as having a musical mind or a musical, musical multiple intelligence. Um, and the podcast with uh, Barbara Oakley called Learning How to Learn um, talks about that. And multimedia, it makes it possible to be able to teach to all these learning styles. But if you focus on one learning style, if you focus on the student that says he's a kinesthetic learner and only teach him kinesthetically, then you're not, you're not really preparing him for success. Because what happens in life when he needs to learn with his ears? What happens when he needs to learn visually? And another, another thing that Barbara uh, brought up that I think was a really good point is these students, you give these students these learning styles tests, and they test as, for example, a student tests as a kinesthetic learner. So you, you give the student hands-on manipulatives, but the same student could be given a visual test, and they could test to be fine as visual learners. So you shouldn't, as a teacher or an administrator, label a student as, you're a visual learner, I'm going to throw a laptop in front of you, you're going to watch videos, and that's how you're going to learn. It's important to kind of say, okay, you learn best this way, but you still need to learn in all these different ways. 
Um, I also agree uh, with what Jonathan said, that our brain is capable of learning in so many different ways that we shouldn't just limit ourselves to one type of what they call learning style, um, because then that hinders us in so many other ways. Um, I feel that the one difference between learning styles and Gardner's theory is that Gardner's theory is basically focusing on our natural aptitudes. Um, and we learned by this week's reading that our brain development is dependent on both our genes and our environmental experiences. And both of these could cause us to have a natural aptitude towards one of the areas that Gardner mentions. Um, in fact, in the article that we read, The Variability of Learners, it talked about how Einstein's brain was disproportionately allocated to spatial cognition, but he had difficulty recognizing those those patterns and sound syllables to make connections in reading. Um, and that caused his teacher to write on his report that he was never going to amount to anything. And yet now we know Einstein to be this incredible genius. Um, and so we can't just say, you know, he wasn't intelligent. Maybe he wasn't intelligent in one area, but he was intelligent in so many others. Um, and I think there's like a lot of people throughout history that show an aptitude towards something like, you know, Mozart. He was an amazing composer. He was composing by the age of five. Um, so he definitely had under Gardner's theory that aptitude towards, um, musical and Einstein was more spatial. So I think that while learning styles is not something that we should focus on because we do not want to limit people to learning in just one way. I feel that Gardner's theory is pretty accurate because I think, you know, everybody does have a natural aptitude towards something um, and everybody's different. Have you studied brain research before in your other classes? Very, very briefly. I took an intro to psych class because I was required to, to get my undergraduate degree. And I took, I took it four years ago. So a lot of that information went into my brain and out of my brain. I mean, it was about six years ago now, so I haven't really brushed up on it since. Uh, since then, I mean, there have been some professional developments at my school that goes into socio-emotional learning that kind of deals with the adolescent brain, um, but not much. Well, I do remember learning about the brain in my college classes um, when I was in the education program and also taking psychology as well. Uh, they talked a lot about the brain. But most of my knowledge, I think, comes from when I did this book study a few years ago on whole brain teaching, which I'm pretty passionate about. I, I love the approach that Chris Biffle created. Um, and then we also at our school were very heavily focused on growth mindset. Um, and we talk about how the brain is a muscle and how, you know, by continuing to work it, you're growing your brain mm -hmm. and your ability, um, to learn. Um, so a lot of what I read this week during the articles, it kind of reminded me of what I had learned during the book study, um, which is basically not to just focus on one area of the brain that you need mm. to make sure that you're developing all parts of the brain because that's what's going to help you um, learn and retain the information into your long-term memory. What is whole brain teaching? I don't think I've heard of that. Oh, whole brain teaching um, is an approach that basically says that in a in a normal, typical learning situation, a teacher gets up and gives a lecture and students are sitting, taking notes, listening to the teacher. So really, in actuality, they're only activating two parts of their brain, which is their listening and their memory. And even though they are activating a memory um, part of their brain, it does not mean that it's going into long-term memory. It could be short-term memory, which in Chris Biffle's book, 
he mentioned that they had research that said that your short-term memory could last anywhere from 15 to 18 seconds, and that they even found out that your short-term memory could cut out after two seconds, which means, you know, when you're giving instructions and then a student turns and says, wait, what are we doing? That totally explains that, you know, they were listening, but it went to their short-term memory and then right back out again. Um, so with the whole brain teaching approach, it's a style set up to where you're activating multiple parts of the brain at once. So the students are not only listening to you, but they're visually seeing it. They have to repeat it to somebody else. Um, and then there's an emotional game um, aspect of it that comes into play um, that gives them rewards for, you know, giving me big motions. And they have uh, so they're not only kinesthetically doing it. Uh, but they're vocally doing it, they're hearing it, they're seeing it, they're teaching it, and then they get rewarded for their enthusiasm, which ties into the emotions. And we know that emotions are a big part of learning, you know. Uh, if someone is not emotionally invested into what you're doing, then they happen to just tune out and not pay attention and not really put that information into their long-term memory. But by activating all these multiple parts of the brain, you're likelihood of them retaining the information grows significantly. Uh, you had a question, uh, Jennifer. Oh, my question were, um, what were some of the misconceptions about the brain? And in our readings, I found that there were three misconceptions. And some of them I remember hearing from college. The one said that the left and right hemispheres of the brain should be taught separately to maximize the effectiveness of learning. But we know now that we shouldn't be teaching things separately, that the brain is all connected. It's like a series of networks. So we have to hit the whole brain, not just different parts of it. Um, the second one was that the brain grows in spurts. Um, and we know now that the brain is constantly growing. You're constantly getting experiences, and that is helping you form new connections in your brain. So we know that we're in continuous growth. And then the third misconception was that people use only 20% of their brain, um, which is not true. We use more of that. Um, it's just we haven't gotten there with the research yet to know everything about the brain. The 20%, sometimes I hear 10%. That seems to be the most yeah. popular. Like, yeah. That often comes up in movies. and Exactly. Um, it's one of those things. I kind of interpreted the question, I guess, a little different than you guys. Uh, I, I feel like... You guys are taking kind of the, the research misconceptions and misconceptions that are maybe disproved by research. But I think maybe as a student or as an adolescent, there are misconceptions that they have about their own brains um, that they label themselves as stupid, quote unquote, and that they, can, they cannot get out of that stupid, quote unquote, phase mm. of their brain, that they can't train their brain, for example, if they're bad at math. I've heard students say this in my class. Oh, I'm bad at math. I'll never be good at math. You know, and that's a misconception that they have. And, you know, I think, I think as teachers, it might be a good idea to actually show them this research that says, no, you're wrong. Like, let me show you. There's studies that show that you can get yourself out of this quote unquote stupid phase that you say you're in. Um, and Barbara Oakley talked about that a lot in, in her podcast. I mean, Hearing what Barbara Oakley has accomplished in her life, I mean, she is a professor, she's a writer, she worked with the Soviets, she was in the army, and she herself said, I'm, I'm no genius, you know, if you look at my accomplishments, 
If you look at my accomplishments, it might look on paper that I'm just some math whiz, I'm some engineering whiz, but I really, I struggled in school. But, you know, I trained my brain to become better. And I think as, as, as teachers, we got to get rid of these misconceptions that students have. We have that at our school, too, where we talk about growth mindset, which is basically getting the kids to understand that they're not bad at something. They just haven't had enough practice at it and that the brain is a muscle and you have to be kind of open minded to understanding that maybe you don't understand it yet, which is like our key phrase at our school. I can't get it yet. But if you keep practicing at it, then you're growing those dendrites that are helping you to learn and eventually you will get there. When I read about this type of stuff, I always feel like I'm reading some kind of artificial intelligence, like describing computer wires or stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, it really is incredible. I mean, I read 100 trillion connections through pathways of neurons. I mean, that, that is just a crazy number. And you think about all this research that's being done, and you think of this number, 100 trillion. I mean, we're probably not even close to being done researching all there is to know about the brain. I, I don't think we ever will. Um, you know, there are some things that have been researched to the max in this world, but I think the brain is something that you can never research enough. And it, it really, I mean, there's so many, you know, vocabulary words. I mean, science, science was a lot for me in school. And the brain itself could have a whole textbook. Just like artificial intelligence, our brain is composed of a set of networks that work together to control our body. The fact that this one three-pound object is able to control every emotion, every thought, every movement is just amazing. And it kind of reminds me of like space exploration, how we, um, we've learned so much about space and what's out there, but we have like a whole galaxy still to explore uh, and find out about. And it's, it's kind of funny because a lot of science fiction that you read or watch is, it seems very similar, their artificial intelligence to what our brain can do. Um, so I, I just think it's amazing. Every time I read about the brain, I'm both amazed and disturbed. The way the brain is such an efficient learning machine never ceases to amaze me. But then there's the part where it can change our perception and our minds. And I found that part a little bit disturbing, like that part in, in the mind and brain reading where they talk about false memories. It kind of disconcerted me as well. And it kind of made me think like, what memories might I have that are not exactly completely true of what happened in reality. Um, and then I just, you know, remember when I was young, people, you know, they tell you, you know, don't tell a lie because if you keep lying, you're soon, you're going to eventually start to believe that it's real and you're not going to know what the truth is based on the lies. Um, and then I started thinking about what Barbara had said in her podcast when she did her research on serial killers and now they've convinced themselves that what they were doing was helping people. So it kind of just shows how capable we are of rewiring our brains to make it believe what we want it to believe. Uh, and the article, uh, The Variability of Learners, it um, stated that our brain has evolved not to mirror reality, but to warp it in a way that suits us. So in a sense, we are interpreting and creating our own reality, um, which is kind of cool, but also kind of crazy in the same way. Um, and it reminded me of that movie, The Matrix, where they are, they don't realize that their reality is not really reality. Um, so it's interesting how we can form these false realities in our head.
Yeah. I want to build off of that. I, I forget what Netflix series it was. It's about police interrogations, and they sit this guy down in an interrogation room for hours and hours and hours. They eventually get this guy to falsely confess because he spent so much time in this interrogation room that they actually got him to believe that he killed someone, and he confesses. Wow. And then the, ser- the series eventually uh, it ends off that they find evidence that he didn't commit the crime and he gets released from prison. But I mean, that's 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 just an example of, of false false memories and, and not maybe not false memories, but how the brain can just be programmed by each other. I know the brain is being efficient and making shortcuts, but the idea that the brain is making interpretations for me even before I'm conscious of it, that's just uh, that's just amazing. One of the readings had the picture of the chessboard, and no matter how long I stared at it, even though I knew I was seeing it wrong, I just couldn't see it any other way. Yeah, I, I stared at that picture for at least two minutes, and I still couldn't see it. Yeah, I, me either. I tried to cover up like some of the diff- darker squares, <laughs> and it just still can't see it. I, I don't know what it is. Why do you think it's important for educators to understand how the brain works when we're learning? I, I think I think the the first word that comes to mind here is variability, and, and it's that each mind is different from each other. And uh, I think it's important to not only acknowledge that as an educator, but use that to our advantage. I read an article that talked about how academic situations can feel threatening in the mind, and even exhibit stress for students when they when they enter a room before they even sit down because they anticipate what's going to happen. They anticipate uh, getting an article in class and they're not going to be able to read it and they're going to get called upon. And it just puts their mind into what's, what's called the shut-off mode. And, uh, you, know, you know, there are different types of students out there. There are introverts who, who really get overwhelmed, overwhelmed when they have to interact with someone. And then there are extroverts who, you know, the extroverts are your students that, you know, they're the first students you think of because they're outgoing, you know, they always raise their hands, they always participate, you know, they, you know, they have fun with other students. But your introverts are, are, are your students that kind of hide in the corner and they're quiet and they never raise their hands. And they can definitely slip through the cracks as a teacher because you don't really see them. Um, and then they're, they're, the article also talked about students with severe... Um, affective disorders such as schizophrenia or a history of abuse and uh, they're, they're highly vulnerable to reading failures in part because these strong affective influences are, are derailing the work of their recognition and strategic networks which are two of the, the major, three major networks and uh, you know it's important to, to understand this as a teacher understand you know wh- what the community is like that you're teaching it because that could have a huge huge effect on the brain understand you know when your students go home what are they dealing with you know are they really mentally in a state where they can go into your class and learn or do they need to step back or learn one-on-one um you know there's so many things as educators that we need to understand how and why the brain works when we approach our students rather than just saying here's the article here's the work here's the math equation do it i don't you know i don't care where you what you're going through you have to do this you know that's really not not the right approach the one last quote from the article that i really liked it said imagine that all of the processors may be the same basic make and model we're talking about like a processor here 
and it has the same make and model, but each has specialized atta attachments for blending dough, shredding cabbage, and other specialized tasks. They all, right, they all perform the same general function, that's food, process, food processing, but their output is as different as pie crust is from coleslaw. So it's also important that quote to me means each mind is so different, like don't compare students to each other because student A's mind works completely different than student B's mind and, and you can't compare them as, as teachers. I think that understanding the, how the brain works really helps us better understand how to teach our students. Um, and just like had Jonathan had said about how there, there are so many factors that go into how we learn. And one of them that he mentioned was our emotions and understanding that our students are coming from a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different um, family situations. You know, you never know when a student is coming to you and they haven't eaten all night or um, just recently, I had a student in my phonics group that I teach and his mom hasn't been home in two days and he doesn't know if, if she's coming back at all. So how can he focus on learning phonics with me if he is so worried about his mother? So understanding that they have other um, issues or things that they're dealing with on their own that can impede how they learn and then we need to be sensitive towards that. Um and then also we have to know, you know, what is their background knowledge coming into it? Do they understand any of the concepts that we're trying to teach? Because if they don't have anything to connect that to, then they're not going to learn the new information we're trying to give them. Um, so I think understanding that, you know, not everyone processes information in the same way, not in the same time, and that, you know, our brains may be more ready to learn different things at different times in our life. So not to just, you know, judge the kid as being, oh, well, you're not smart enough, you know, um, there's nothing more we can do for you. I tried helping you out. Just understanding that, you know, just keeping work with it and that repetition, it is going to help them, even if it's just by small increments. Um, and I think that's why, you know, spiral teaching became such a big thing is because, you know, before it would be, let's teach this concept in first grade. And the kid doesn't see it again until fifth grade. Well, by that time, they don't remember any of that. It's been years. Um, and it's kind of like what Barbara had talked about with the languages. You know, is it better to learn three languages all at once for five years or learn one language at a time? And she mentioned learning all three at the same time because you're constantly reviewing it and going over and over it again. Whereas if you do them one at a time, then they're going to lose the first language by the time they get to the third language because they haven't been practicing it. Um, and it kind of goes with that saying, you either use it or you lose it. And I know that's definitely true because I remember being a very good student in high school and I always got good grades in math. But if you were to ask me how to do one of these algebraic equations now, I, I wouldn't be able to do it. Uh, and I passed the test. I showed mastery, but you know, I haven't used it in so many years. So I've lost that ability. I'd have to retrain myself all over again to be able to do that. So I think understanding how the brain works is really going to help us to further help our students. Can you speak a little bit more about spiral teaching? Because I, I think uh, I'm not sure if everyone would know what that means. Okay, so spiral teaching is basically a continuous review of all the skills. So like if a student comes into um, I don't know, first grade and they have to learn addition and then you go on to adding with multi-digits and then you go further on into subtraction and then subtracting with multiple digits. Like you don't just stop teaching addition 
and not hit upon it again until, you know, two years later, they got to constantly be reviewing the skills over and over again. Um, so that's what spiral teaching is, is keeping those skills in rotation so that it never goes two or three years before they see that same skill. Like, for instance, when I taught in um, fifth grade, I remember we we have a science test that we have the FSA, which is the Florida Standards Assessment. And um, for fifth grade, they have the science one. And one of the questions on our science FSA deals with rocks and minerals and they, we didn't teach rocks and minerals. It wasn't a standard in fifth grade. They were supposed to learn that back in third grade, but they don't remember anything about rocks because it's been two years. So how are they supposed to pass that on the test if it's not covered again the next year and then the year after that? So just keeping those skills rotating and spiraling um, is what's going to help it keep track in their mind, that repetition. I like spiral teaching because it can be applied to the unit level as well as cross grades and courses. So for example, this class is designed as a spiral, So, and throughout the semester, you'll keep coming back to familiar topics. I do the same across courses in the educational technology program, so that important theories and concepts aren't mentioned just once, but revisited in different courses. And also, something you said earlier, Jennifer, maybe think of a misconception of mine that was dispelled when I first heard Barbara Oakley's podcast last year, which was about repetition. I had believed that repetition was not learning, or at least not good learning, because it seems monotonous. And I think a lot of people still believe that. But in the podcast, she said that repetition actually does have real benefits to learning in, in the brain in terms of creating and strengthening connections. So that really changed my mind to see this reflected in research. I did. Well, when I taught in the classroom, we did a lot of like when we did math, repetition, their multiplication facts was very important. And I know our county was trying to get us away from doing like speed drills or having them, you know, repeat spelling words or any of that things because they wanted them to have more of a conceptual understanding of how things worked, you know, more conceptual understanding of syllables or of multiplication in general. Uh, but I feel like by giving that deliberate practice of that repetition, it's just helping it become automatic which is what we want them to know. You know, you can't go on further in math if you don't know automatically, you know, five times five is 25. You should be able to do it automatically. And they're not going to be able to do that automatically if they haven't done it over and over and over again. So I think repetition is very important. I would definitely agree. Um, like ref repetition is important. Uh, but when we think of repetition, I think we immediately jump to multiplication tables, right? Because that's what we're familiar with. You know, finish 50 multiplication tables, flip it over, your first one done in your class, you're, you're happy. But there are some aspects, and I think this is where where kind of the, the discussion has been created. There are some aspects, certainly in math, where you do need not just repetition, but you need to establish some understanding, right? So I, I, think, I think that is where repetition the line kind of does need to be drawn but i do agree if you understand something you should be able to repeat it time after time after time again and i know that there's that that phrase drilling it into your mind and there's studies that show that you know you're obviously not taking a drill and putting it in your brain but you know that's how the nor that's how the neurons and the synapses are working when you completely re repeatedly do something it is getting stuck and cemented into your mind yeah. And I think as long as it's like Barbara had said, it's the deliberate practice that you're doing over and over again. I think that it's very helpful. But if it's just mindless practice, then it's not really going to affect them.
Yeah, I like how you're on first name basis with her. <laughs> yeah, me, me and Barbara. <laughs> I mean, after the two hour podcast, I feel like you know me and her. She's like my aunt or something. <laughs> yeah, we're BFFs now. Yeah, I think what was something that most surprised you or you found most most interesting from either the readings or the podcast. So I am a I, I like visual things. I wouldn't label myself as a visual learner because after this research and all these readings, you're not supposed to label yourself as a visual learner. But <laughs> but I do I do I, I I am drawn to seeing things. That's what I am drawn to, and I really liked that checkerboard illusion where those two squares were supposedly the same shade of gray. I still. I, I, I don't know if I believe it. Someone needs to convince me because it's really crazy how the mind really makes you misconceive that. Um, I'm not sure if it was in this class or not, but there was another video I saw where it's like four men in basketball uniforms dribbling a basketball, and you're watching them dribble the basketball, and a, a man in, in a gorilla suit walks past all the the men dribbling the basketball, and you don't even realize it because I believe the video asks you to pay attention to how many times they dribble a basketball or something. So that would be an example of, of kind of strategic, how the mind works strategically, because you're focusing, your mind is focusing on a, a particular aspect of the video. And then the, the video will replay and say, hey, did this time watch the gorilla walk right across the screen that you just watched. And you watch it again, you're like, you're like, wait, there's no way that gorilla was in it in the video the first time. And you rewind the video and you're like, wow, the, the gorilla was there the whole time. And it's crazy that when your, mind, when your mind wants to focus on something and you have, I guess, that tunnel vision that you're looking for something, the mind programs itself to view that. You know, when it asks a separate question, you could be looking at the same thing and your mind can work a different way. Um, well, I found the most interesting part is uh, when the podcast talked about deliberate practice and how we learn a topic. Um, and it talked about how we go through these modes of focus and diffuse learning. Uh, and I like how she identified that you should work ideally for 25 minutes, you know, put away all the distractions. Um, you know, that's something big. Like, you know, sometimes I'm working and I have my phone right there. Someone texts me and all of a sudden my attention goes right to my phone. Um, so putting away all those distractions and just really focusing on what you're trying to learn. And then after that 25 minutes, giving yourself a reward of doing something active or fun, you know, now you can pick up the phone or now you can go outside or, you know, go have dinner or something. Um, and she also mentioned how important sleep is to repetition. And, um, it just kind of reaffirmed how I feel like our students really do need these brain breaks. And a lot of times I feel like teachers get into the habit of, you know, I have so much information that I need to cover and they need to do well on this test. Otherwise, my principal's going to come after me that we forget that they're just kids and that their brain is not set up to process all this stuff. We can't just keep shoving things at them and expect them to retain it all. So understanding that, you know, we need to teach the material, but then give them a break, a chance to process it and then come back to it. I think that's how we're going, you know, to get them to understanding the concepts even more than if we just taught and taught and taught and keep pushing all this information at them. So I really liked learning about um, the ways we learn and how to study effectively. Yeah. I mean, we still sometimes say, let me sleep on it to mean, let me think something over. And I don't think people had neuroscience in their mind when they say it, but it seems like there's a basis for the idea of having enough sleep before making a big decision. 
I want to go to the variability of learners reading um, where it mentions on page 80, they write that, quote, a core set of courses with an underlying collaborative pedagogy that requires them, the students, to be responsible for one another's learning. What do you think of that part? This study really opened my eyes just as to how effective and important collaborative learning is. And I'll be the first teacher to advocate for uh, collaborative learning. Um, I know that there are students that are shy and don't like talking to other students, but the study really shows how far collaborative learning can take can take you. And, you know, we the study ties social engagement and academic engagement together, and they really are, you know, tied with a close knot. Um, because you feel responsible, you feel important, and you feel needed, you know. If you don't finish your part of this project, then you're letting down other people. Um, as opposed to where, if you're working alone, if you don't do the project, you're really just letting down yourself, right? And in your, in your mind, the way the brain works is, you know, if, if, if I'm only letting down myself, you know, that's myself. I'm not letting down other people. And the study shows that um, the reason why these, a lot of these students are dropping out of college is not because their grades are bad, but because they're lonely or they don't have anyone. So it's really important to, to really make these connections, whether it's student to student or teacher to student. I know there's a big emphasis on mentoring now. Um, so, you know, we should all be responsible for one another's learning, one another's emotions, one another's feelings. You know, we should all be closely tied together as a close community. Um, and the, this, this connection between effect and cognition, you know, a simple affirmation of learners' positive sense of their self or of their value as individuals and of the importance of their membership in a cultural, in, in, in a cultural tradition has, you know, time after time again been shown to have positive effects on their learning and on their performance. When you feel like you're a part of a community or you're part of a club, you know, and that's why there's a big emphasis in my school of joining clubs. When you feel like you're a part of something, that's when you really take ownership and responsibility in your learning and your life. So I think I think this study, if if you haven't looked on it, it's on it's on page eighty of that reading. It really opens your eyes to how just how important it is to get students talking to each other and learning from and with each other. Well, I agree that collaboration is highly effective in helping with academic engagement. Um, we all love being social. We're social creatures at heart. And I think it even helps, you know, our students who are more introverted to kind of step out of their shell. Whereas, you know, if we did it like a traditional classroom where everybody is sitting in their rows, the teacher asks a question, one person answers. You know, your introverted students, introverted students are not as likely to raise their hand and participate um, in that discussion, whereas if they're in smaller groups with a, a closer knit group of people, they're more likely to be able to open up and actually share their ideas. And I feel like learning, uh, it's important to get different ideas and different perspectives to really help us learn and understand um, content. Um, so that's why I feel like such strategies such as Kagan, which was heavily produced in my county uh, a few years ago, and Whole Brain Teaching, which I absolutely love, um, it helps incorporate those social interactions uh, with an academic focus, which is very important for students. What made me want to talk about this quotation was, and I agree with Jonathan, I like collaborative learning, but I often find it's hard to design an assignment where some students 
won't feel like they are shouldering the burden of the group. I think in at least one of the pre-class surveys for this class, someone said they didn't like group work for that reason, and I can see why it can be annoying. Yeah. Well, I think for me, and I know I was one of those people who, you know, I don't like being thrown into a group and then being graded on other people's work. Um, and, and it's hard because then you either end up doing all the work to make sure you get a good grade and then resenting them for not stepping up and doing their work. Um, but I think collaborative learning, I enjoy the aspect of being able to communicate with people and talk and understand a subject more um, through collaborative learning. But when it comes time for the grading, I feel like that should be based on my output, what I'm able to put together into a project or um, a test or whatever it is. So I don't like grading collaborative work with the students. I feel like that's more their time to grow and um, delve more deeply into the topic and then be assessed separately. I also like that how, Jonathan, you brought the study about how African-American students were asked to write something positive about themselves, how that simple exercise was able to improve their academic performance. In the capstone I'm teaching now for the Educational Technology Program, we're reading a book called Whistling Vivaldi by Claude M. Steele, which is about how people's unconscious perceptions of themselves, specifically as it relates to academic achievement, can have real-world impact on their performance, but also how things like the study Jonathan mentioned can really make a difference. Oh, yeah, I agree. Because you and you have those students who come up to you and they're they already have it in their mindset that they're not a good test taker. And mm-hmm. they're like, well, I'm not going to pass this because I'm not a good test taker. So already they're telling their brain not even to try because I'm not going to do well because I have this idea that I'm just not a good test taker. So I think, you know, reminding yourself like I can do this. This is something that I just need to focus on and work hard at um, helps them put that effort in. So they're not just shutting down completely. So the last question is, given what we now know about the brain and how learning affects it, what are some ways that we can train or change our brain to help us become better learners? I want to bring up some points that Barbara Oakley made, because I think it really encompasses the whole question. The main thing that she said is the fact that as learners, we often label ourselves. I know the word she uses a lot is quote unquote stupid. Uh, Some students say, oh, I'm stupid at math or I'm not good at math. And they think that's going to be how they are for life. And the first thing she really talks about is this thing called the Kumon Math Organization. And it's a great organization. Um, If if you guys haven't researched it, you should definitely look into it. There's actually um, Kumon uh, stores. I don't know if you could call them stores, but there's Kumon buildings uh, across Long Island. And what what they do is they practice with their students looking at a topic or information for a period of time, say five minutes, um, and then they look away. They look away from the screen. They look away from the book, and they spit out or recall all the information that they just learned on a piece of paper, right? It's It's like regurgitating everything you read. You try to write as much as you know on the piece of paper. And what this does is it practice it practices building understanding and building memorization. Um, she says if you memorize a poem, it will help you understand it more, right? Rather than just read the lines. So by being able to, I guess, spit out all this information, it practices building understanding, it practices memorization, and it trains your brain to become a better learner. The next thing she talks about is sleeping. And I know Jennifer referred to this earlier. Sleeping is 
scientifically proven to help your memory. Information is transferred from the hippocampus to the cerebral cortex for memory retention, and it is proven to help your memory. I know it's a big problem. My school students will show up. I'm a homeroom teacher, so I see them first thing in the morning, and I, I could just look at their face, and I ask them, what time did you go to bed last night? And they say 3 a.m. And right then and there, I know it is going to be very, very hard and very difficult to get them to really accomplish anything that day. If you can't sleep, it's hard to obtain information, and then therefore it's hard to retain that information. She also talks about procrastination, which we all deal with, whether you admit it or not. We are all procrastinators. If there's something that we don't want to do, our brain is programmed to tell us that we don't really want to do this and push it aside until we ultimately really have to do it and there's a deadline approaching. Uh, she talks about the Pomodoro technique, and I know Jennifer referred to this earlier. It's where you put away all distractions, you set aside uh, you're in an area where there's no distractions, no TV, no cell phone, no outside distractions, and you time yourself for 20 minutes. And you say, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to finish this essay in 20 minutes, I'm going to finish my homework in 20 minutes, and then after, I'm going to treat myself to an episode of Netflix. And uh, this extrinsic motivation trains your brain to be in focus mode. You tell yourself, I only got four more minutes and then I can treat myself. And you're literally training your brain uh, to become the best learner. Another thing she talks about is repetition. I know that there is, we, we talked about it earlier in the podcast, repetition is kind of being pushed aside as um, an old technique that's kind of outdated. But a little bit each day builds understanding and you're actively bringing it to the mind, right? Just like spiral teaching, it's very important to keep on bringing stuff that is learned to the forefront repeatedly so students don't forget about this. And finally, last but definitely not least, is exercising. I, I can relate to this one. I was a two-star athlete in high school for soccer. I was being recruited to play in college at a mid-major school, and I ended up tearing my Achilles, so I didn't get the opportunity. And uh, I did realize that the time off from training I got more stressed, uh, I procrastinated more, I was down on myself more, and I figured it was just because I wasn't really playing the sport that I loved, but exercising is proven to uh, re reduce the dendritic spine exposing, and it fixes procrastination, it, fix it reduces stress, it's proven to reduce stress. Um, so exercising, whether it be intense exercising or something as simple as just going for a walk, is proven to help you train to become the best learner. These are all strategies that we can use to become the best learner that we can. It's so important to give your brain that break to really process the information that you're learning. She also talked in the um, the podcast about the focus state versus the diffuse mode. So, you know, just because you don't understand something at first doesn't mean that you're not going to get it. It means that you just need a break, let your brain process for a while, and then come back to it. And I, I find that that has been like a strategy that I've used a lot. Uh, I did a lot of theater growing up. And, you know, every time I had to memorize lines, you know, if I just sat there and tried to memorize this long monologue, at some point I'm going to get frustrated that I keep missing the sentence or I keep missing certain words. But if I just put it aside, 
go away, do something else, come back to it. All of a sudden I'm amazed like, oh, I really do get it. Or if I, I sleep on it, I always try to memorize something at least a day or two before. So I have time to sleep on it because the next morning I'll wake up and I'll automatically start saying the part and I'll be amazed by how much I really do remember. So I think understanding that you have to let your brain go into a diffuse mode is very important. Well, I think that wraps up the conversation for this week. Next week, we're going to talk about experts and novices, and and we're also going to talk a little bit about Bloom's taxonomy. I want to thank my guests again, Jennifer and Jonathan. Thank you for coming on the podcast. (laughs) Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. I'll talk to you later. Bye.